Nahum. I'll share from the scriptures a little bit tonight. I may, uh, this may be a warm-up for Sunday morning, I'm not sure, but uh, I would say to you that I had the call with the AHG, American Heritage Girls representative, uh, yesterday, actually, a very good conversation, and so that's kind of moving forward. Uh, she may have contacted you already, and uh, so we're uh, trying to move forward and get things established uh, for a tentative startup date in September. Is that my, is that correct? Tentative. Okay. So just be in prayer uh, as they put that together as well. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to go down and see the garden, we've got some life showing down there. Um, and of course, the the, predator, the the animals, I think, have noticed that as well. So they're working on some of it too. Uh, but we're thankful for those doing that. Uh, I'm in chapter two of Nahum. Um, by the way, I appreciate uh, Michael Snyder sharing Sunday and kind of give me a, a chance to do something I don't get to do very often, which is sit and listen to preaching. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed that. Uh, I think it's maybe trajectory towards where I'm going to be someday, uh, being a listener. Uh, I've been studying uh, really about all day uh, in Nahum and then back and forth in Jonah. Uh, it's really difficult, as I shared, to, even in Jonah, uh, to share from the Minor Prophets the narrative form of that uh, without being repetitive and without a lot of overlap. But it seems to me that a lot in the Minor Prophets there's always a statement uh, that kind of is the prophet's summation, uh, as it were, inspired summation of what's happening uh, in the text. In chapter 1, we've already talked about, uh, really, he lays out a, a case for who God is. Uh, that's so critical because as he begins to unfold this judgment, this, uh, this judgment upon Nineveh, uh, it's, we need to be very intentional about realizing that this is God who is bringing it. Uh, it's... Yes, it is the Babylonians, and yes, there are instruments involved in that, but it is God who is, who is bringing about or who is bringing upon Nineveh this judgment, just as it was God who was bringing upon his own people the oppression that the Assyrians brought. And so God is sovereign and acting according to his own counsel uh, in these events as well. Uh, he, uh, in chapter 1, verse 1, even in the beginning and the introduction here, the oracle of Nineveh or the burden of Nineveh, some translations write, uh, but it's the book of the vision of Nahum. And so really what we see, it's almost this, the imagery that I have is that God was able to show in vision, in, in the form of a vision, the unfolding of his judgment upon Nineveh. And so when we read, when we read Nahum, uh, Nahum is describing in words what he's beholding in the vision. And so when you, when you read through this and the, and the graphic language and the expression, uh, it is what he is seeing. Uh, it's, not just, it's not just dry words written down. It's almost as if in some ways Nahum has been set down in the midst of this and he's beholding the vision or the unfolding of God's wrath and his judgment upon Nineveh. So he's, he's rehearsing, as it were, or iterating with great with great passion and urgency what he's beholding. So it's the vision of Nahum. In chapter 2, which we're looking at tonight, uh, really that summation verse is in verse 13, and, and this is to me what was somewhat frightening to read this, but at the end of this graphic description, he says this, 
He almost takes the person of God speaking as God here, but he says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And when you read that, you need to go back to chapter 1. Who is it that's against you? And that's why I think he laid this foundation of this God who is against you. Just as a reminder, in chapter 1, he is a jealous and avenging God. He, he is wrathful. He is, takes vengeance on his adversary. He reserves wrath for his en enemies, slow to anger and great in power. No means leaving the guilty unpunished. And he goes on to describe him there. He also says he's good to those who are his. And he, he is a refuge for those who take refuge in him. So, so this description of God that he lays down in the very beginning at the end of chapter 2 when he says that God is against you. And so that should have a <clears throat> huge impact on the people of Nineveh here. So the God he has described is against you. That is a terrifying and, and absolutely stunning realization to know that this God he described not only in Nahum, but the God described in the Bible is potentially against his adversaries or his enemies. That God is against you. It's not Israel. It's not the prophet. It is God himself who is against you, Nineveh. That should have rattled them to the core. And, and apparently it did under the preaching of Jonah because they repented at that time, but now they had slipped back into their sinful life. So repentance is not a one-time thing. It is an ongoing way of life for the Christian to be following or for the believer to be following. Nineveh did not do that. And now the very same God who relented in his calamity concerning them has come back to visit them. And it is God who is against you. Now that's important because he doesn't say it's Babylon who is against you. In fact, Babylon, if you do the historical research, they're really from the same people group, the Chaldeans, and there was almost a dual kingdoms going on. Babylon was on the rise, and Nineveh was so arrogant in its power that it didn't realize that a potential foe was being raised up even while they were at the zenith of their own power that would eventually come against them. And I couldn't help but thinking of the arrogance of America in our generation. I mean, we look around and God is raising up and empowering or, or allowing to come to power nations that he may use to chastise us or to discipline us or to utterly destroy us. And so it's not, it's not, it's not irrelevant to our generation today. So that's a powerful point. It is that the Lord is against you. Notice as well in chapter 2 in that last verse, he says there specifically, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. So this is a declaration of the Lord of hosts. In chapter 2, in chapter 1, you remember, he says in verse 14, The Lord has issued a command concerning you, speaking of Nineveh. So this same Lord now has issued this command concerning Nineveh. And now he says here he is making this declaration in regards to to or to Nineveh as well. But notice here, it's the Lord of hosts. The, end, the imagery there is the Lord of, of divine armies, the Lord of divine power and the forces to bring against you. So the Lord of hosts. It's not the Lord of Babylon. It's not the king of Babylon with his army. It's not the king of Assyria. It's not even Israel and their armies. The Lord is, the Lord is operating by the power of his own will and his own forces, as it were. So it is, the Lord is against you. 
Now he says later in chapter 2, in chapter, or not later, but at the same time at the beginning of chapter 2, the one who scatters has come up against you. I think in that context he's speaking of the king of Babylon because he picks that back up in chapter, verse 3 when he says the shield of his mighty men. So I don't think he's speaking of God there, but it is God who is against you and the instrument with which he is judging you is the scatterer who is coming against you. So God is coming against them through, an, through the instrument of the king of Babylon or through the kingdom of Babylon. He is the Lord of hosts. And the command has been issued, and now the declaration is being made to Nineveh. Only a mere 115 to 150 years following their mass repentance, nationwide repentance, and God's relenting, now in a short generation or two, they have gone back to the place to where they were before, and judgment has arrived upon them. As I said in verse 1 of chapter 2, the instrument of that judgment, notice, is the one who scatters in verses 3 and 4, you see the power, as it were, of the scatterer. He says the shields of his mighty men are colored red and the warriors are dressed in scarlet. I was reading a, an article about this and, and they was talking about they would literally paint their shields red as though they were flowing with blood. The Babylonians did. But they would have their garments in red as well. One, one historian said that the belief was that when they were in battle and they were stabbed that they would look down and they wouldn't see any blood. And therefore they would take courage even as they were being wounded. They would look down. Their garments are red anyway so they can't tell if they've got a bad wound or bleeding or not. They just fight on ferociously. And so the Babylonians were a fierce people. The shields of his mighty men are colored red and the warriors are dressed in scarlet. They are also a, a mechanized army, if you will. The chariots are enveloped in flashing steel. In fact, uh, the Syrians and later the Babylonians developed almost all the sieges of war and the instruments of war that would be used all the way into the Roman Empire and even some, in some ways, theoretically, even to our day today. <clears throat> when I was in the service, we had a weapon system called a phalanx. Well, that's a, uh, that's a Roman formation in military, and that was adopted for all the way back as far as the Assyrians. So they were, these were a warlike people, though people trained for war, and Assyria was too, but so was Babylon. In fact, Babylon was training its people for war to, to ultimately rise up against Assyria. And as I said, Assyria's arrogance caused them to keep from realizing that a, that a potential foe and a replacement was being raised up to their south. So their chariots, he says, are enveloped in flashing steel. And when he is prepared to march, the cypress spears <coughs> are brandished. He says later on that they tremble like Lebanon. And so you have this imagery of the strength of the scatterer who's coming against you. So he's speaking now to the Ninevites and in the hearing, as it were, of the Israelites. And so they're taking courage that finally Assyria is going to be put down and God's going to use a violent nation to do so. And they're going to be delivered from the oppression of the Assyrians. And that's their, that's their encouragement. But at the same time, it's a frightening imagery for the people of Nineveh. This great and powerful nation in some ways who had never known defeat. Now he's speaking of a scatterer who is coming against you. And he is a military might. They have mighty men and they have shields colored red. Their warriors dressed in scarlet. Their chariots are like flashing steel and the cypress spears are brandished there. So 
So this is a well-armed army coming against them, a well-equipped and capable. In verse 5 as well, at 4, it says the chariots race madly in the street. This is the idea of the vision that Nahum is seeing. The chariots race madly in the streets. They rush wildly in the squares. Their appearance is like torches, and they dash to and fro like, like flashes. Uh, just to me, as I considered that and just the imagery there, you can see a, almost as a city in chaos and they're screaming and there's fire and their bodies and blood is piling up and there is a vicious army and they're, they're, there's no way you can stand against this onslaught of chariots and, and lances and brandishing those swords and, and they're racing to and fro and you're just catching things in a glimpse and, and you're just, your mind's wheeling everywhere and you can't make, make sense of anything. That's what's coming against Nineveh. And it seems to me as though Nahum is, is seeing it. And he's describing what he's seeing. It says if he sat down in the middle of this judgment and the wrath of the Babylonians coming against the Assyrians and he's sitting there in the midst of it seeing all that's unfolding and he seems to be almost rushing to describe what he's envisioning here. And it's a dreadful sight. I think he's speaking here of the Assyrians and the Ninevites here and the, their leaders in verse 5 when he says he remembers his nobles. The, the Assyrians remember their nobles. Some historians believe he was talking about their great mighty men of the past and, and even those who maybe had aged out beyond the active service in their military. And so he, he remembers them. And the king of Assyria calls all the forces, everybody, every mighty man, come to the defense of Assyria. So he remembers his nobles, but they stumble in their march. They, they can barely, through weakness and terror, get to the walls. And when they finally get to the wall, the, the mantle is, is set up. That's, a, that's basically a shield there from anything that might be tossed across the yard, so the, uh, because, across the wall. So the Babylonians had come up to the wall of the city, and they had these mantlets that were protecting them from anything that might be thrown over the walls. And the people on the walls knew they were helpless to defeat the enemy, who's well-armed and well-secured underneath these walls. And so they're all, you can see their heart melting away. They call for the elders and, uh, and their mighty men and they stumble and they come, finally come to the wall to her defense only to find out that there's no way to stop the, the, the besiegers there at the wall's gates. Verse 6, their gates of the rivers are opened and the place is dissolved. Speaking of Nineveh there, it is fixed uh, some people think it's speaking here of the Queen of Nineveh. Some people think it's speaking metaphorically of the city of Nineveh in the feminine. But she is stripped, she is carried away, and her handmaids are mourning like the sounds of doves beating on their breast. It seems to me to fit more to be thinking of the queen who would be protected and guarded in such a city. All the nobles and all the mighties, the queen would be rushed away to an inward sanctuary somewhere and all of her maidens would be gathered there. God saved the queen as it were, but so, so ferocious is the onslaught that there's no way of protecting her and she's going to be led away. The, the treasure or the precious jewel of the Assyrian Empire, the queen, the wife of the king of Assyria is going to be led away as a simple prisoner and a slave and her handmaids will go along with her and they'll, they'll mourn like doves at what has taken place. 
That idea there as well, the rivers are open. Some people believe they actually were able to somehow divert the Tigris and, and literally flood the city. But I think he may be speaking more metaphorically. But the flood of the, of the onslaught was broke into the city walls and they infiltrated inside this massive, well-fortified city of Nineveh, who the whole world thought was impenetrable. You see why, you see why in the end of this that Nahum summarizes it and says to them, the Lord is against you. The Lord God is against you. This is otherwise inconceivable that you should be experiencing what I'm envisioning here as Nahum the prophet. The whole world would have thought this impossible, inconceivable that this should happen. And you're exactly right. In the strength of men, no one could have overcome Assyria and the great empire of Assyria. But it is because God is against you. That's the difference. And that's why he lays down so strongly who God is in the first chapter. Because that's the God who has come up against Assyria. And Assyria needs to understand that. It's not just Assyria, it is God working against them. Verse, th verse 8, he comes back speaking to Nineveh and about Nineveh. He says there that Nineveh was like a pool of water. Some people think that that means that there was calm and serenity in the city of Nineveh. No one dared challenge her power or her authority. And there was a relative peace for, for, for centuries, as it were, as they grew in their power. She was a pool of water throughout her days. Now look at it. He says they are fleeing. Stop, stop. I mean, he, he interjects himself there as one of the Ninevites. The pool, the city that was a pool all of her days and the, the picture of serenity and luxury and, and pro prosperity and provision. They had it all and now look at it. People are running away from it and he's as it were a Ninevite and he's screaming, stop, stop, don't leave Nineveh. But then he says, but no one turns back. They're all leaving Plunder the silver, now he's speaking as a, as a Babylonian, plunder the silver, plunder the gold, for there's no limit to the treasure, wealth from every kind of desirable object. Talking about the city of Nineveh, she is emptied, yes, she is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting, knees are knocking, and anguish is in the whole body. Can you, can you feel emotionally almost... What Nahum is experiencing as he's envisioning this, this massive city, great and powerful as it were, reduced to nothing. And he's, he's, almost, he's almost stunned at what he's beholding here. Hearts are melting and knees are knocking. Also anguish is in the whole body and all their faces are grown pale. The color has flushed out of the residents and the citizens of Nineveh, they could not have conceived of such a thing as this. I thought to myself as I was reading this, the reaction in some ways of the world would be the same if America, the superpower, was suddenly and unexpectedly and inconceivably overwhelmed. The whole world would be doing that. They would be talking like this. They would be saying to the enemies, plunder her gold, take it all. The city is emptied out. It's amazing. It's overwhelming what has happened to America. Well, America is no more immune to that than Nineveh was if God is against you. See, that's the key. If God comes against us, we are no better than Nineveh. 
He says to them, where is the den of lions and the feeding place of the young lions? The imagery here is the, he uses the male lion. We know from natural studies that usually the females hunt and provide the meat and the male comes in, dominate, protects the pride and he'll take what he wants from the female. But the imagery he uses here is the, the king of Assyria is the lion. He takes the prey. And he gives it to his lionesses, that's his queens and, and his nobles, and they give it to their children. So you have generations of those who have taken prey. They have, they've gone out to the kingdoms of the world and they have looted them and dominated them and murdered them and tortured and everything else. And they have taken prey from the nations of the earth and he has given them to his queens and his children. And the whole generation of the Assyrians have grown up on a steady diet of meat taken in, in war as prey to provide for themselves. Their whole provision has been taken by violence and they have grown accustomed to it. They think it's their, their due. They are entitled to it. Sound familiar? Sound familiar? This is the way he is. And he's speaking almost mockingly here. Where is the den of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions where the lion, lionesses, and lion's cub proud with nothing to disturb him? That's long gone. Where is that place? Back in those days, the lion tore enough for his cubs, killed enough for his lionesses, and filled his lairs with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Oh, Nineveh, where are you now? It's not like that anymore. This vision is clear and it's graphic that Nineveh is utterly laid waste and destroyed, emptied out of all of her treasures, all of her strength and all of her might brought to bear against this enemy is as nothing. Hearts melt away. Knees are shattering. They're running and they're fleeing as fast as they can again away from this fortified city that was once impenetrable and indestructible by any other kingdom on the world. And now suddenly... It's collapsed. And he summarizes that in verse 13 by saying, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord. I, notice here, I will burn up her chariots in smoke. In, in fact, I, that was interesting to me because the chariots were symbolic of the power of Assyria. Uh, you remember across the walls, they, they could run chariots abreast of one another. So thick were the walls in Nineveh there. So, so it was a signal of power. It would be like our day in a, a nuclear-armed submarine or a nuclear uh, silo site or something. It was the epitome of, of Assyrian power and dominance. They had masses of chariots. When the Lord is against you, He will, may, he will burn those up in a smoke. A sword, he says, will devour your young lions. So the, the might of Syria will be burned up by God in a smoke. And there will be a sword brought against your young ones, and it will devour all those young children. Remember in chapter 1 when he says a command has gone out, you will not be perpetuated. They're doing, uh, they're, he's doing away with their children. There will not be a name for them any, any longer after this event. In fact, I've already shared that I think it was 18, 1868 or maybe, maybe a little earlier, mid-1800s, before anyone ever discovered anything in regards to Nineveh. They, 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 there were people who even doubted that the story of Nineveh was true. So God buried Nineveh and their namesake for all those centuries until 19, or 18, in the mid-1800s before someone finally found a trace of these Ninevites. 
A sword will devour your young lions, and I will cut off your prey from the land, and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. I think in terms of Isaiah, remember when Second Acherib comes against Hezekiah and and he's mocking, mocking the Israelites and even their God. Do you think God will deliver you? None of the other cities have ever delivered you. In fact, he even goes further and says, oh, your God sent me to kill you. Your God sent me to take you into captivity as though he was mocking. He wasn't doing it in obedience to God. He was doing it to satisfy his own lust. But God had come against the people in that sense. And he brought himself up against Hezekiah. And we know through the Lord's mercy, God destroyed 185,000 of those Assyrians and they left and never came back to Israel or to Jerusalem or Judah. So I want to stop and get into chapter 3 Sunday morning, but here's some things I was thinking about. I want you to think about these things. And these these are more or less gleanings from the reading of Nahum over and over and over again in the context of God's judgment and of Jonah. But these are just observations that I, that I made in thinking and praying and meditating on these books. Number one is this. One cannot rejoice in the ruin of his oppressor while ignoring the root of that ruin lying dormant or restrained in his own heart. Galatians 6, 7, and 8 is a reminder to me of that. But even in chapter 6, verse 1, uh, you... Uh, Anyone who's caught in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one with the spirit of meekness, lest you also be tempted. In fact, to me, that should always be the balance of even the imprecatory psalms. Uh, Some of the other ones might get into that area as well. There is a place for that, and there is justification biblically for that. But one cannot rejoice in the destruction of his enemy and the ruin of his enemies without without also realizing that the root of that ruin lies within them as well. So there ought to be a certain humility involved, even in imprecatory psalms, and certainly in the rejoicing of being delivered from oppression. So there's a, and I've said this before, but I don't know what it is, but in our generation we have taken the word fear, and you ever notice this? They always call well, that really means reverence, as if they're trying to convince the Christian, no, it don't mean trembling and terror, it means reverence. No, it means trembling and terror. I mean, when you read this, when you read what Nahum is saying here, and the Jews are seeing or being forecasted what is going to happen to the mightiest army upon the earth whom God has come against, the Jews ought to have in one sense rejoiced, but in the other sense trembled. Because by the time of Jesus' incarnation, the Pharisees had the same root that was in the Assyrians budding up in them. And they were mighty, as it were, in self-righteousness. And they were as subject then to God's judgment as even the Ninevites were here. So I think... I think we need to be careful about minimizing in the hearing of even believers that fear means reverence and with the absence of trembling. He says here, the Ninevites, hearts melt and their knees were knocking. I got news for you. When God shows up and judges an ungodly nation that way, as a Christian, my heart melts and my knees start knocking. Because woe but for the grace of God stand I. I am as worthy 
in many ways as that judgment as they would be. So there ought to be a real trembling and a real fear. Yes, it is a reverent and a reverential and all-filled realization of the glory and power of the God whom we are dealing with. So that was one observation in reading these and others as well. Number two, it is often the case that the only distinction between the oppressed and the oppressor is the power and freedom to act upon sinful desires. The subdued might just as easily become the oppressor with time and ability. My conclusion, be careful that in your deliverance, you don't become yourself the oppressor of others. Just to give you an example of what I'm thinking there, uh, church folk. There was a time when, as a church folk, you may have been lost and, and wicked in all your behavior, and God in His great mercy called you out of death into life, and you became a Christian, and you came into the church, and in six months, a year, five years, ten years, you became so self-righteous that you looked down and you forgot about the mercy you enjoyed, and you gave none of that to other believers who have yet lost in their sins. The, the oppressed has in that case become the oppressor. And when I think about the judgment of God on Assyria using Babylon, well, Assyria was the oppressor. Now Babylon's coming to oppress the Assyrians, and they're going to be subdued under the Babylonians. And then the Medes and the Persians are going to come later on and subdue the Babylonians. And, and so we see this cycle back and forth. So Christian, in our deliverance, be careful that we don't become oppressors ourselves. Number three, God's deliverance of His people while praiseworthy is not God's vindication of their righteousness, but of His. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11, read that if you want to write it down. But God is saying there, for my name's sake, I will do this. For my name's sake, I entered into covenant with my people. And my people are not living up and are unworthy of the covenant. And by all rights, I could abandon the covenant. But not because of your righteousness, because of my righteousness, I will deliver a remnant from, from within this oppression. So God's deliverance of the believers, the Israelites, or even you, is not a vindication necessarily of your righteousness. It is a vindication of His own. Romans chapter 3, where God says He put forth Christ as a propitiation to demonstrate His righteousness. Not theirs. His righteousness. So God's deliverance of His people in this instance, out from under Assyrian bondage, later on the southern kingdom would go into bondage to Babylon, and, and so God would put them right back in into that same circumstance as well. So God's deliverance of them was not His testimony of how righteous they were, but of how righteous He was. That's what I think Jonah doesn't seem to understand when God relents in Nineveh the first time. Number four is this, that ascendancy, prosperity, and dominion ought to be accompanied always by a deepening humility and is not in and of itself to be presumed unjustifiably as God's blessing and therefore His endorsement of us or of our means and methods of achieving those things. I know that's a, an awful long sentence, but I'm, I'm saying that if God... If God permits us to rise to some power or influence, a.k.a. America, in the world, 
Don't assume that His allowing you to rise to that place is His endorsement of your methods and means and motives of achieving that place. You can rise to that place the same way Assyria did. You can go into other nations and by sheer terror and murder and bloodshed amass to yourself wealth and power in the world and be feared for millennia. But that high position should not be presumed to be God's blessing or endorsement of you. In fact, the king of Assyria came on his own with his own lustful desires. God allows it for his own purposes and according to his secret counsels. So it's no endorsement of the king of Assyria. He's going to judge the king of Assyria and the king of Babylon and all the kingdoms, which he uses as instrumental to even sanctify and chasten, chasten his own people. So don't make presumptions there. Number five, that God's remnant may be distinguished by a severe providence. Uh, this is scary to us, I think. It's by discipline, refining, and then even sanctification. God may distinguish the remnant by a severe, and I do mean severe, trauma or trial. I mean, there were many under the oppression that might have sided with Assyria and even taken places in Assyria to relieve their own suffering. Same with Babylon. Many, many had gotten to learn to get along with their oppressors to find some safe space. But God may bring severe, severe persecution to distinguish who belongs to Him, who the remnant is. God kept that remnant down throughout the history of the world. He held fast to this remnant. And many times the great majority of those went away from God, but he always was faithful to hold fast to himself a remnant of people. America, I, I think we've, we've gotten used to a, a massive, overwhelmingly Christian nation. But what if God brings a severe trial into this nation? To distinguish who is his remnant in the nation of America. Who will, who will abide in Christ and endure the suffering of, of, of being a Christian in that day. Or who will accommodate and compromise with the evil generations who take power. Don't think that God will not send a severe, by a severe promise or providence, identify who the remnant is. Number six, that even the most ungodly and our most ruthless enemies cannot act independently of the power and secret counsels of God. That's what struck me about these and the other prophets as well. These nations came up with their own lustful desires, their own desires for power, and they pursued all that they wanted and got the desires of all their heart. But they were not ever at any moment acting out from under the secret counsels of God. He even says of Pharaoh, I raised you up for this purpose, that I might dem demonstrate my glory in you by your destruction. And he raises up the king of Assyria in the same way. God is merciful to whom he will be merciful. According uh, to Romans, Paul and Romans and to Moses as well. And so it is clear to me through all the scriptures that the evil kingdoms of this world, though they may be used by God to chasten his own people, never, never act outside independently of the secret counsels and power of God Almighty. 
So if our nation gets overrun by China in the next 50 years, we cannot say that China was therefore defying God and acting independently of the secret counsels and power of God Almighty. We would best be asking why has God permitted such devastation in a nation who once called itself a Christian nation. And we ought to repent in that day and continue in that repentance even the most ungodly and most ruthless of our enemies cannot act independently. A couple more real quick and I'll close. Another thing to be gleaned is that in God's judgment upon the wicked, His people ought to take courage and be warned at the same time. God is faithful, but He acts to vindicate His holy name, both upon the ungodly in judgment and upon His own in discipline. He says, I will not give my glory to another. So when, when we see the wicked judged and deliverance from the oppressor, yes, it is appropriate and proper to give praise to God and to rejoice in the vindication of the glory and righteousness of God Almighty in that. But at the same time, we ought to be warned because that holy name will not be defamed by his enemies, will also not be defamed by his own. And he will bring a heavy hand of discipline upon the church if we do it as well. That's serious business. That is deadly serious. We ought to take courage, yes, in our deliverance, but be warned at the same time that God is not a man like us. His name is holy and he will not suffer it to be defamed among the wicked or among those claiming godliness. He will bring his discipline or judgment to bear in those cases. And the last one is really from Hebrews 10, 11 through 31 can read that I'm thinking particularly of the passage that warns of the danger or the terror of treading underfoot the blood of Christ and therefore being subject and dropped into the hands of God this statement any reliance upon anyone or anything less than the person and sacrifice of Christ as a means of righteousness and peace with God is as worthy of the judgment and wrath of God as was Assyria, Babylon, and all the evil kingdoms of this world combined. I say that because to do so is to tread underfoot the most precious thing in the universe, and that is the life shed blood of Christ. In fact, that's the context of the Hebrews passage. Those who would think that there was a sacrifice that would offer sins. But he says to them, after coming to the knowledge of truth, there is no other sacrifice for sin. It's either Christ or you are awaiting judgment upon that sin. There's no offerings and lambs to be offered up anymore. Christ is the one time for all time sufficient sacrifice. And anything offered in opposition to Christ is to tread underfoot the very blood by which you were saved. And that is a dangerous place to be. And that's what I glean from these prophets and how God dealt with these people. Any reliance... Any reliance upon anyone or anything less than the person and sacrifice of Christ as a means of righteousness, reconciliation, or peace with God is as worthy of the judgment and wrath of God as was Nineveh in our story. To do that, to tread underfoot and disregard the precious blood of Christ is to, is to invite God to be against you. And if the graphic description of what that looks like in Nineveh 
seems minor to you, read on. Read more of the prophets because when God comes against us and judgment is poured out, there is no mercy involved in that. In fact, the context of that, that those who died uh, in violation of the Mosaic law died without mercy. Without mercy. And to tread underfoot the blood of Christ is to remove yourself from the possibility of having mercy. And without mercy, we will die and suffer a judgment likened to that of Nineveh, even so eternally speaking. There is no annihilation. And so that's, those are just some thoughts. There are many others you could glean from this passage. But when I read Jonah and then read Nahum... And I read what's being communicated not only to Nahum and godless nations, but to God's own people about the sobriety which which they ought to take in following Christ. It is a warning for me. It is a warning for me. Yes, I rejoice in an all-powerful God, but I tremble and my knees knock and my heart melts when I can contemplate that that all-powerful, all-seeing God is aware of the deep recesses of my heart and the sinfulness I continue to nurse in the flesh. And that is just as dangerous a thing to be embracing and to be nurturing and allowing to grow in our lives. Be, be killing sin, John Owen says, or sin will be killing you. And we ought to always and ever remember that. And I think that's some of the gleanings, uh, New Testament, New Covenant, looking back gleanings from Nahum in the book of Jonah. So stand with me tonight. I hope that is helpful and challenging as well. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for grace I thank you for mercy. Lord, I thank you for the precious blood of Christ. It seems as though Jonah didn't understand that when he went to Nineveh the first time and, and preached and you relented when they repented. Lord, I'm convinced that what Jonah didn't understand was the fountain of that mercy was Christ. And for Jonah to be angry that the blood of Christ was profitable for the Ninevites in that moment was to, in a sense, tread underfoot that very blood. And Father, we understand from this text from Nahum as well that many years later, Nineveh did not continue in that repentance, but they went back to their wickedness and their ungodliness. And they, in essence, tread underfoot the blood of Christ themselves, the very source of the, of the, of the relenting that they experienced and enjoyed. And now in this book, Father, we see that that mercy is no longer available to Nineveh. And there is nothing but utter destruction and chaos and sorrow and melting hearts and knocking knees and death and blood. And that's only descriptive of the great judgment to come for those who would tread underfoot the blood of Christ this day and reject their only mercy. There is an eternity far worse of suffering awaiting those who reject Christ than the mere attack of an army, but of an eternal condemnation. So, Lord, we thank you and rejoice in our deliverance in Jesus Christ. And we pray that we might carry that message of hope and of the gospel into our world today. And we pray for your mercy. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.